This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Your weekend is not complete without the First Lady of New York Radio. It's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. Straight ahead, and as you know, we do it every Sunday at 2 o'clock. And I've got a really terrific, I know I say this every week, but we do have such great guests. And this Sunday, Leslie Stahl of 60 Minutes fame, she's a remarkable person. Leslie's coming on, and you're going to find out things maybe you didn't know. You know, people who work with her say, I want to come back in my next life as Leslie Stahl. And she is admired and loved and really interesting. And then the one and only Billy Porter. And Billy has written his memoir, and it is an incredible story of survival. He went through a lot. He had a really tough childhood, but he was born with this gift, this incredible voice that when his mother took him to church, he was deeply religious, Pentecostal religion, and just a little tiny kid. And suddenly this voice came out of him, startling everyone, gifted. So we've got two fascinating guests for you. The kind of information like that we're all going through now. Are we doing Thanksgiving? How many people? How do we deal with the unvaccinated relatives? How did we deal with telling people they need to be tested? We're going to do that. So hang on because straight ahead, the Sunday edition, 2 o'clock of the Joan Hamburg Show. The First Lady of New York Radio, Joan Hamburg. Entertaining and informative. Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm very happy to catch up with the one and only Leslie Stahl, one of our great journalists. You know Leslie from 60 Minutes, where she's been for over 30 years. White House correspondent. Uh, just Leslie paid her dues from the time she started out on Face the Nation, was a moderator, all the world leaders. When we talk about people having great careers, I'm telling you, Leslie Stoll comes to mind because no one has it all, as we know. But Leslie, a fabulous career that's fascinating, a life that's beside her career, a daughter, a husband. I don't know about the dog, but... She really does do it all. How are you, Leslie? I haven't talked to you in ages. I'm really good. That was one amazing introduction. Wow, you went through my life. <laughs> there's what? nothing left. There. You know what? Knowing you, there's always something exciting <laughs> left when you think about it. And when you think about it, and I forgot to mention a couple of books thrown in there for good measure, too. It's it's like almost hard to believe, right? Because you look up and 60 minutes over 30 years, the whole kitten caboodle. Well, you do. You look up and you say, wow, did I live all of that? You're absolutely right. And it is, it's a lot. 30 years at 60 minutes, about roughly 20 stories a year. Mm. You know, asked me the other day my favorite story ridiculous 500 i can't even think of my top 10 you know so it's a lot it's a lot listen leslie i finish an interview i'll come out of a studio and someone will say who was that and i'll go oh i barely <laughs> once <a> week <laughs> finish with them it's like it's like it's over but it is really incredible when you think about history and what a part, really, you played in it. I mean, I remember you covering Watergate forever. Right, right. The value in that 
I think, is that I can look back and say, these are not necessarily the worst of times. Uh, because you and I, and we're not going to tell how old we are, but you and no. I remember the 60s uh, when there were riots in the inner cities and kids who were marching against the Vietnam War were being shot on college campuses. The animosity toward Nixon was the way similar to the animosity to Trump by half the country. Just half the, it was the same. So, right. You know, Get a little perspective when you start to look back on all the things that we have seen, and it makes you a little more hopeful because if we can come out of past upheavals, you get to think, well, you know, we'll get our way through this moment in our lives. I know there's your op-ed piece for one of the major newspapers because I do find there's like a collective cloud over so many people trying to be hopeful and trying to see light. But it's been a long almost two years with what's gone on in the world, with the virus and the whole thing. I'm curious, though. I know how competitive the whole news world is and even shows like 60 Minutes in terms of getting the good story. Do you pick the story or do the producers pick the story and say, this is yours? At 60 Minutes, we pick our own stories, but the boss has to approve it. And if it's the biggest story of the day or the week, everybody wants to do it. So while we have, yeah, proposed stories, um, the producers do have uh, a lot of power in who does what and, in fact, what gets on the air. Uh, You know, it's friendly competition. It's not cutthroat, even even when Mike Wallace was there, because he had that oh. reputation. <laughs> he would have stopped he, anybody. And he did steal one of my big stories away from me, but it was never cutthroat. There was always, at least in my mind, I don't know if everybody else would agree, but in my mind, uh, there was civility um, and affection, affection for each other. But also... You, everyone likes you. I've talked to people who have written books about 60 Minutes, and a lot of people are like, oh, am I glad I don't work with them? But it was never you. You were always, I want to be Leslie Stahl. I love Leslie Stahl. Because you sort of keep the peace and keep well, I, them all going. I don't, I don't think that's true, that everybody likes Leslie Stahl by, um, you know, a mile. But, but I will tell you that when I went to 60 Minutes, my girlfriend, Diane Sawyer, who had been there, mm. gave me wonderful advice. Like? She said, like, don't get into the politics of the place. You know, just stay away from it. Stay away from the gossip. Stay away from any internal junk that was going on. Put your head down. Do your stories. And, you know, the stories by themselves are so so interesting, you've chosen them yourself. You care about them. You're going to meet the most fascinating people mm. in the world. I'm not talking about heads of state at all. I'm talking about the experts we find. I'm talking about the human interest stories. I'm talking about being able to cover every kind of story there is. You know, we investigate, we do human interests, we interview people from all walks of life. And you can have a full, complete, total career life without getting into the, you know, the politics and the gossip in the office. And I've really, really tried hard to do that. And I think there's a little protective covering that comes from that. Because if you're not in the swirl, you know, they're they're not a pot shot. So, yeah. Right. And and you've... You've got to have strong insides, too, because even when a Mike Wallace allegedly giving you a story and then decides too good, he's going to keep it himself. You sort of learn to step over it and go on to what's important if you can. That's true. But I will say about Mike, uh, just I mean, he's sui generis. There's nobody who ever lived ever who was like Mike Wallace. And you'd get angry at him. And then he had the most incredible 
uh, way of worming himself into your heart. He was so fun. He had redeeming qualities. Um, and you, you were always forgiving him. And that was true of everybody in the office. He stole stories from everybody. And you'd get furious <laughs> for a minute, and then he'd give you an impish smile and kind of say, look, you know, it's a game. Come on, lighten up, kiddo. Um, and you do have to have a sense of humor, really. You do have to be able to laugh at yourself and at the situation. Um, and I say that now, you know, I'm looking back, I'm older, I can really laugh at the situation now. It wasn't always easy. <laughs> you know, no. The only benefit of growing older, the only benefit, you get a little perspective. Yeah, no, a couple of other benefits too. And a celebration that after over 30 years with this particular show, you're still going strong or still at top of your game. When you were White House correspondent, now, no one really knows, you know, it looks like the most glamorous assignments in the world. Pop on the presidential plane, have your ear right to the door. Is it like that or is it a lot of drudgery? The White House, I loved covering the White House. So let me start there. Um, there, I got such a rush from the deadline, daily deadline pressure. You know, meeting that deadline is a catharsis every day. You get addicted mm. to it. There's an adrenaline thing going on in your body that you literally get addicted to. There's a lot of drudgery, but the pressure every day not to be beaten by Judy Woodruff was at NBC and right. at ABC and I was at CBS and we we were competing with each other every day. The pressure was intense. So even while you stood around waiting, I mean, it's a job of waiting. You're waiting for uh, the press secretary to tell you something. You're waiting for the person who's in with the president to come out and give you a little interview. It's waiting. But the pressure on you constantly was exhilarating, exhilarating. Mm. So, uh, and, and again, the idea that I, you would have to be involved in every single kind of topic you can think of everything. I mean, throwaways, obviously in the budget boring, but uh, there was the president's personal life. There was politics. There was uh, all kinds of social issues and cultural issues. Everything came across the president's desk. And one president being so different from the next. So the idea that you were dealing not only with different personalities and different outlooks, um, but different attitudes toward the press. So we were being right. From hostility to acceptance to tolerance to his, more hostility. I don't know. It was, uh, I, I liked covering that. I liked the, I guess I liked the intensity of it. Well, and also you were the first woman, as I remember, to have that job. And tell me if I'm wrong. I, you, you covered Carter yes. and Reagan and yes. Bush. That's a lot of presidents to cover. Well, and the point is that they were all completely different. Different. Yeah, whipsaw. In, not just in their uh, in the issues that they were dealing with, but and and in their philosophies, but also in their personalities. And their personalities determined the personality of the whole institution, the White House. So yeah, it was it was it was thrilling. And when I got to sixty minutes, you know. People kept saying, well, how are you adjusting? The honest truth, and I didn't talk about this very much, but it was actually easier, believe it or not. It was easier. The The, the deadline pressure was not daily. Uh, we could take more time to think. At the White House, you know, you're on the air every day. There's not yeah. a lot of thinking. Today, you know, with the Internet, there's no thinking time. Zero. We at least, you know, had a couple of hours. We could make phone calls and ask people for advice and uh, get the opposite side of the story. Um, but at the at sixty minutes, we have quite a bit of time to make those phone calls and think, and look for the opposite perspective. So, you know, it it was easier and and fun in its own way. Yeah. Right. And all the world leaders that you met, I often wondered when I watched you, 
through the various, um, well, most of it, 60 minutes, but even before when you had Arafat, I mean, people who were names, but we never really got to see what made them tick, but you did. Was that nerve wracking when you knew that you were on a big stage with the biggest names in the world? You know, it's very, 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 I don't know why, but very few people have intimidated me in my career. Uh, I always, uh, I don't know why, I, I can't explain it, but very few. There was one, however, and it was, uh, it was an interview I did online. So we weren't in the same room. He was across the world somewhere. And there was a general, an American general, Norman Schwarzkopf. And somehow, he was a famous general. Exactly. <laughs> he, he intimidated me across the, from the other side of the world. I don't know what I would have done if we'd been in the same room together. So mm. <laughs> um, otherwise, otherwise, um, I don't know. You know, there's a little bit of control that that a head of state or a secretary of state turns over to an interviewer. And it's kind of equalizing. You That's know, really answering, interesting. Yeah, they're answering your question. Uh, and I cannot explain why Schwarzkopf had me so back on my heels, but he did. <laughs> All those medals were intimidating. Yeah, they blinded me. I don't know. I, you know, I don't. I can't explain why I wasn't intimidated by. You know, oh, I'll tell you one other one who did intimidate me, and this was in person. It, it was Margaret Thatcher. You're kidding? Was, Why? No, she was so intelligent. You know, the 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 Brits stand up to questioning in their weekly confrontation in, in Parliament. And I just think she was well-practiced at batting the ball back and intensely. And whatever questions I asked, she came right back at me. Um, concept, you know, you talk about a tennis match, and she was hitting me in the face every oh. time she <laughs> the ball up. I wasn't, it wasn't intimidating the way it was with Schwarzkopf, but it was beyond challenging, and she won that match 10 to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Oh, my gosh. Did you ever figure out, I mean, it's long gone, but people still talk about that when you had the Donald Trump interview. And it it was a perfectly interesting, it was going along and all of a sudden he gets up and like he's had enough and walked out. Did you yeah. ever figure out what motivated him to do that? You weren't really killing him. <laughs> Right, exactly. Uh, no, I I don't know. I think he. You really want to know what I honestly think? Yeah. Like what do you want? I'll tell you, but I can't get into his head. I don't know if this is why, because you're right. It seemed to come out of nowhere. But I think at some point he realized that he was not coming off well, because I when when he wasn't telling the truth, I was challenging, as many other you know, interviewers did with him, but it, it was intensely uh, challenging on my part. He'd say something. He had said it before, so we knew that he might say it again, and I was briefed and ready. So I was always challenging him on what he was saying, and I think at, by the point that he got up, he just said to himself, I'm, I'm not winning this. Right, enough. But he didn't stomp off. I know it may have looked that way. He didn't stomp off. He just said, okay, I think you have enough, and got up, and it was a friendly departure. He said, I'll see you later. We had a date to do a walk together, uh, you know, outside. And, and uh, he got back to the Oval Office and decided, no, I'm not doing the walk. <laughs> he decided that he was angry. Um, but none of that was in the room at the time. So, you know, it's all. That was that. That was that. that. Was that. You know, yeah. I'm curious now that um, the world has changed a little bit. Maybe we're more normal. I'm still afraid to believe it. But have your stories changed in terms of what you want to do, what you're looking for, what you think people care about? Not really. No. Um, 
you know, what happens, each one of us at 60 Minutes has a team, um, a team of producers. And there are four producers on my team. And each one of them are responsible for coming up with story ideas. I am responsible for coming up with ideas. And we sit around. Um, I try to have a mix each year so that all my stories aren't politics or all my stories aren't, you know, environment. So I try to have a mix. That's always been true. And, of course, it's dependent on what the big stories of the day are. Um, global warming is a huge story right now. Yeah, we will. I will do a couple of those, which I wouldn't have done a, a year before. Mm-hmm. But generally, you no. Know, I like to have a medical story. I like to have. I like to interview one celebrity. Not too many. They're hard. <laughs> That's one of the hardest things in the world. Why and, do you uh, think, well, Leslie? Why well, I'm talking to Leslie Shaw, by the way. Sixty minutes. Why do you think celebrities are so hard? Um, well, because they're used to uh, their own press. You know, there's an entertainment mm-hmm. press. And it's not the same as what we do. So they're expecting to have much more control over the process than we allow. Mm-hmm. We're not allowed to tell them questions in advance. We're not allowed, meaning our standards say we can't do that. Uh, we want to see some something that ha- they haven't shown the world before that's personal. We want to go home with them. Uh, all these things that make it difficult because they push back. They're not used to that. I'm right. not going to do Well, this is, you agreed to a 60 minutes interview. This is part of the problem. But it is. <laughs> yeah. And the interviews can, you're trying to get behind the mask and they're trying to prevent you from that. And a lot of the other interviews we do are on on an issue. The person who's agreed to talk, wants to talk, um, has come on, but the subject they've agreed to talk about is the subject at hand. It's not their whole life. Uh-huh. So files in general, profiles of, of anybody uh, are very hard. I find that those are the hardest, to tell about someone's life. Imagine, right. you know, you're pressing it into 13 minutes. it's complicated is your life easier your daughter is grown has her own family now you know that pressure and you travel so much for what you do so there were a lot of complicated years but you did it but do you feel that it's a little easier looser than it was during those years um well, I'm going to be candid with you, Joan, because you're my what? girlfriend. Uh, my husband has Parkinson's disease. I know. How is Aaron? He's not doing great because he had COVID. And COVID, so did you. Yeah, but I recovered instantly. Mm-hmm. And when you have Parkinson's, and the, his tough. doctor told me about this, uh, it it just plays havoc with his with that kind of neurological disorder Mm. so it it you would think that things would be easy but i don't like i travel a lot and i don't like to leave him and so there's a whole new chapter and a whole new array of pressures so so if you travel and it's not like across the world does he come with you a lot well he used to um Mm. but he really can't anymore um, and he mm. used to up till park uh, till till COVID. Yeah. So it's a new. I'm sorry. Yeah. No. Is he writing? No. 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 Leslie's husband, a wonderful writer, with a lot of major things under his belt. Well, including Leslie, movie, including wanna, including the movie Urban Cowboy, uh, which and is two other movies, but Urban Cowboy, you can a classic. Not done television and a right. lot of books, about ten books. He had a brilliant career, but no, he can't write anymore. No, so. I'm so sorry. And on a good note, the grandbabies, yeah, yes. they're great. They're fabulous. <laughs> if any grandparent who's listening will tell you, and I, uh, you, are you a grandmother? 
Yes, John oh. and Christina with Stella. All right, then you would know that there's oh, the best. Oh, but they exactly. how can you describe that love? You can't even express it. So it's no, and they live too far though. Mine are in L.A. I know yours are on the West Coast, too. Yes, it's far. It's okay. For FaceTime. Thank goodness for airplanes. Right. (laughs) And we talk a lot and we look at each other a lot. I know. That's important. Leslie, thank you. I love catching up. We'll see you Sunday, every Sunday, every week. An amazing story. We're thinking of you and yours. I know. Love talking to you. Take care of yourself. Say hello to your husband and we'll do this again. Okay. Thanks, Joan. Anytime. I'm Joan Hamburg and you're listening to WABC. And don't forget to listen to Leslie Stahl and the incredible crew of 60 Minutes Sunday nights. I'm Joan Hamburg. Taking you behind the curtain, it's the Joan Hamburg Show. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Welcome, everyone, to the Joan Hamburg Show. And a real treat, the one, the only, Billy Porter, an actor, a singer, a director, a playwright, you name it, a dancer. I didn't want to leave that out. And, you know, it's fascinating. I got Billy's memoir, which is only out a couple of weeks, called Unprotected, a memoir. And I sat there and I kept thinking to myself, how did this human being grow up to be this incredible Renaissance man? He had talent from the time he was just a tiny child. But how did a kid survive this kind of childhood that he had to be a black kid, a gay kid? to deal with a very complicated family, abuse by a stepfather, a church so religious there was no room in the church for someone like Billy Porter. How did this kid survive all this, come out of it, and not only become a major presence in the world of art and in so many other worlds, but whole? And Billy, thank you. The book is going to be inspirational to so many people. And it's a real survival story in every single aspect of it. But what interests me is when you finish writing this memoir, and you have already had so many successes in the theater and kinky boots and television everywhere, was this even after all the success and some failure along the way, a healing process for you. It was very much a healing process. It's very much is a healing process. You know, healing is not linear. Um, it's active, just as love is an action. Um, to heal is an action. And we have to show up as individuals every day and understand that we must be active in our own healing. And, you know, what was really significant about writing this book and about being an artist, you know, the subtitle of the book is healing my trauma Mm -hmm. through my art, you know? And so what I realized in the writing of this book while simultaneously being in trauma therapy is that my whole life has been about using my art for healing. Um, So the short answer is yes, it has been very healing and it continues to be healing. I'm working on the audio book right now. I'm on chapter 15. And the more I read, the more, the lighter I feel, um, you know, to be able to uh, have a space. You know, we as artists are very blessed to have the space 
to, like I was saying before, actively work towards healing. When I think about Pray Tell and I think about Pose, you know, Pray Tell stood in proxy. His journey stood in proxy for my own healing. His journey cracked me open and grounded me enough so that I could tell the world. And of course, let's remind, Billy, the audience, that that was your TV series where you start in that three seasons and Pray Tell is your character. So Yes. And Pray Tell is my character on Pose. And Pose is set during the AIDS crisis. And my character um, contracts HIV in season one and dies in season three from AIDS. And, you know... I held on to the information of my own HIV status for 14 years. I was silent for 14 right. years. You never told. And, and it was the healing energy of pray tell. You know, shame is a silencer. And so I was living under the cloud and stuck in the quagmire of shame for the majority of my life. And the, the, the proxy of Pray Tell going through the very same thing that I have gone through in my life gave me the space to be able to no longer be silent and therefore be free. Um, it's been very profound. Mm. And it's very profound reading it. And as I'm coming along with you with this journey, I -hmm. kept saying to myself, even Billy, with this enormous gift from the time you were three, four years old, even before, can humans leave the past behind, even with success, even with getting through some of the worst things. But I get the feeling that you did that. That did happen to you as you yeah. continued on, which is a really rather extraordinary. Well, thank you. And I and I wanna and I wanna just say that it is continuous. You know, it's a continuous journey. I'm in the middle of healing. I'm somewhere in the middle of it. You know, it's not perfect. It's not Totally, you know, I don't know that it, we we ever get to total, you know, 100% right. at all times every day. But um, it is something that feels like healing right now to me. And I am so grateful for it. I really, really am. I'm talking to Billy Porter. And, you know, I don't really have to introduce all of you to Billy. I'll never forget when I went to see Kinky Boots. And I remember, I, you know, I hadn't really read a lot about it. I went to the opening and you just blew the place apart. Oh, and it, no, it was, I, and I kept thinking, you know, as a performer, what joy this character and you, you took over the stage and what this meant to you. Because yeah. all along the way, very few things stop you. I loved hearing your story about Jennifer um, Holiday when mm-hmm. she was in Dreamgirls mm-hmm. and you heard that voice. I remember listening to her when she was a whole mm-hmm. different person and thinking, I-, I can't believe I'm hearing this coming out of a human being. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. And, Absolutely. And you described you were in your kitchen and this was on a little television in there. Yeah, yeah, and it was. And then tell the audience when you read that there was going to be an audition, and you had to go to Chicago. You were a kid in high school, but so <laughs> affected by this. You know, I was sixteen years old. Um, you know, I got bit by the bug of musical theater when I was eleven. You know, I was in the ghettos of Pittsburgh. There was nobody around me in my immediate family or my community who understood anything about show business and never about theater. Um, And 
my pursuit started at 11. And so by the time, you know, there were many angels in my life, you know, who entered my life. And I talk about this in the book just at the right time to like push me in the right direction to the next space that I should be at. And so, you know, when I was in high school, I went to a creative and performing arts high school in Pittsburgh. You know, my drama teacher saw me. She really saw me. She saw my passion. She saw my energy. She really understood my talent. She understood that I could do it for real. And she introduced me to the trade paper. She said, I think you might enjoy this. It's called Backstage Magazine. And it's where all the auditions are. And, you know, I just thought you'd like it. And so she gave me a copy of Backstage. And I went home and I just, I I went through and I read all the auditions and I circled them. And then in the back, you could subscribe. So I got a subscription to Backstage Magazine when I was 15, 14, 15 years old. So I was getting every Wednesday the trade paper from New York City where all the auditions were there. And I would circle the auditions that I would go to if I lived in New York and I could. You know, that is what I call speaking life into yourself. That is, you know, the, the, uh, the law of attraction to me. Of course. You know, so when I was 16 and there was an audition for Dreamgirls um, and it was in Chicago and I happened to have the Friday off from school in Chicago, I mean, in Pittsburgh, um, I uh, took my own money. I told my mother that I was going to a friend's house to spend the night. And I got on an Amtrak train to Chicago for 13 hours. And I you were just a kid. I was 16. I got off the train. I found the building. This is before mm. GPS. This is before any of that. Of course. Um, I went to the audition, and I got back on a train and came back home for 13 hours before anybody knew I was missing. Right. And the audition itself was an amazing story because I learned, and I didn't know that, that union companies have to have auditions. I I didn't realize that, even though there was no room. So you auditioned practically to, you know, there weren't a lot of people auditioning. It was you and two of the principals from the show. Well, the casting director and the resident director, who was also a principal in the show. And they loved you, but you Mm -hmm. were just a kid and there was no work. And you lied about your age and about high school and everything. (laughs) Yeah, well, I didn't lie about high school, but I did lie about my age. I was 16, and you were supposed to be 18 to 25. And so I said I was 18. <laughs> and they st- and I had a baby face, and I still have a baby face. And they were like, yeah, you're a little young. Um, but you're extremely talented. And um, once they found out that I had, like, gotten on a train and come there myself, it was Vinny Liss. Um, casting director, very famous casting director at the time. He's no longer with us. And he looked me straight in my face and he was like, son, you're going to be just fine. You really, truly are. Um, And so I held that in my heart. And um, I got on the train and came back to Pittsburgh and kept on working. Right. Despite the heartbreak that your fantasy to be in this show yeah. couldn't really happen at the moment. Yeah, I cried all the way home. I cried for 13 <laughs> hours on the train all the way home. <laughs> but when, <laughs> but Billy, I'm talking to Billy Porter, when all is said and done, the book now out for a month and everything, what do you think was in you that enabled you to survive Really horrific things. I mean, even just the bullying from the kids in school, from your own mother not believing that her husband, your stepfather, whom you kids had adored in the beginning, was and had abused you. It was like you were alone in all of this. Well, let me correct you. Let me correct you there. Just a little slight correction. My mother always believed me. Right. 
But my mother was disabled. Right. So therefore, she needed him. She didn't have any means to take care of herself. So I took myself out. I extracted myself from the family because I was old enough to take care of myself. I went away to college at 17 and I just never went back. Right. And to a wonderful college. Yes. I went to Carnegie Mellon. Yes. Mm -hmm. Down the street from my house, like literally a 10 minute drive from my house. Uh (laughs) But your mom was so proud and thrilled that her child got into this school and got in on a scholarship, one of the great schools and acting Yes, program yes, too. yes. And my mother has always been, you know, I speak of her, you know, she's very religious, uh, Christian. And I always speak of my mother as being a true Christian, you know, one who practices what she preaches. Uh-huh. You know, she didn't understand me at the beginning. Um, you know, the Bible says that being gay is an abomination. That's the only thing that she understood. And when she was presented with a gay son, she did the work, the Christian work that was necessary to bypass her community. And that was hard. Who were actively telling her Turn to your reject back. me. Mm-hmm. They were actively telling her to reject me. And she chose love over fear. And I am forever grateful. Um, you know, it has been um, one of my greatest gifts in my life to watch my mother evolve through her own Christianity. She evolved. Um, and I just love that. Well, it's fantastic. And Speaking about the church, you talk about, well, Billy Fashion Sense is incredible, and he was a chance taker. And who doesn't remember the Oscars when he was, no diva ever looked like that. It was just extraordinary. But a lot of, but Billy, you say a lot of that fashion sense and taking a chance and all that came from the church because the church was where everyone could get all done up, fabulous hats and new suits for occasion and new clothes. And it had a big yeah. impact on you. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm first generation post-civil rights movement. And our, um, you know, we were taught that the first impression that people see of you is what you look like. So you have to dress. You have to be a credit to your race. You have to dress and look put together. And, you know, at that time, it was about suits. You know, my favorite time of year was Easter and Christmas because I got an Easter suit and a Christmas suit for church (laughs) every year. You know, and it was my favorite time. And, you know, going to church was fun early on for various reasons, for the music and for the fashion. Everybody knows now, you know, around the world that the black church is a fashion show. Always has been, you know, um, because it's a space that we came together as a community in our Sunday best to worship. Um, And, uh, you know, my grandmother was a seamstress and she would make, you know, the, the, the Vogue patterns and, the, you know, all those patterns right. that, you know, used to exist for the ladies. And then we would get our suits purchased. Um, and so it instilled in me and my Aunt Dorothy, my great Aunt Dorothy used to say, you know, dress for the job you want, not the one you have. Good advice. That has always stuck with me, you know, all the way through to Kinky Boots when, you know, I was... And, you know, I had always planned in Kinky Boots to, um, for press, you know, to have a look. And my look was geek chic, you know, bow ties and pocket squares and colors. And, you know, I I had planned it. I had planned it. And I hadn't been on Broadway for 13 years before Kinky Boots. 
And so the last time I had been on Broadway was pre-social media. So we were out of town. We were in Chicago. We were in previews. We had been rehearsing all day. Um, we did our first preview. I came out looking like a vagabond, like we as theater people did prior to social media. And a bunch of people took pictures. I signed a couple of autographs. I woke up the next morning, and every single photo was online. Mm of me looking like a vagabond. <laughs> and I said, oh my God, I'm gonna have to dress up every day. And I proceeded for three years to dress up every day, to go to the show, to represent the show, to come out afterwards and represent the show, represent myself, dressing for the job that I want, not the one that I had. And look at what has happened since. It's fantastic. And as you point out, success is the best revenge. Yes, it is. So it's really, I love that. But tell me now, what the book is out, a great success. You've done incredibly well. What's on the Billy Porter list now? Directing, writing, back on Broadway? Well, um, I am back into the mainstream pop music industry. I just released a single called Children. Um, and I signed an unprecedented deal um, with Republic Records here in America and Island Records in the UK. And so these two conglomerates are working together to make sure that I have the pop music career that I've always dreamed of. So that's happening. Um, this summer, I directed my first teacher film for Orion Pictures. Um, it's called What If? Well, it was called What If? Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, Marvel has a television show now called What If? Right. So we have to change our title. Um, so the, the working changing title is uh, uh, Anything's Possible. Um, it's a coming-of-age rom-com in the spirit of the old John Hughes movies, uh, populated with what the world looks like today. And by that, I mean our heroine is a black trans girl. And um, it's about trans joy. It's about the normalizing of the othered. Um, and I am so grateful to have been given the opportunity to be able to helm telling a different story about this community. So that is happening. That's I have a two lot. Other films that I'm, that's on Orion Pictures. I, I have two other films that I'm attached to. Um, you know, I'm starting my company. I sold um, a television show that I have created and written um, to Peacock. Um, you know, Billy, you got to leave just, a little time to sleep. That sounds, and that is that is that is the that is what is happening right now. You know, trying to figure out. Okay, now that mogul energy is happening, which is what I wanted. How do I now carve out the time and the space? to also be a human being. Well, That's the next layer. Um, and, uh, you know, to be truthfully honest, COVID and the shutdown and the slowing down and the world stopping, you know, really changed me and has taught me um, the importance of uh, self-care and balance and boundaries. I so, um, you know, I am here and I'm present and I'm mindful and I'm available and you know the sky is the limit there are no there are no limits well, um, and I'm just trying to move through life with that well we have faith in you Billy Porter you can pick up his book Unprotected a memoir thank you Billy thank you continued thank you, success I'm Joan Hamburg and you're listening to WABC The First Lady of New York Radio, 
This is Ask Joan. Thanksgiving is the topic on most people's minds because we have gotten used to not doing these things. So on one hand, we want everyone to gather. We want to celebrate. We want to start the holiday season. You know, if you come into the city, I drove in to the station today and the Christmas trees are up already with lights all the way down Park Avenue. It was really interesting. I don't remember them being up so soon. So, of course, Thanksgiving. And people are saying to us, is there a parade? Yeah, there is a parade this year. And the Christmas show is up. The Rockettes are doing their thing. So there's a lot going on. And if you're hosting Thanksgiving, I know you're concerned if there are young children who are not yet totally vaccinated, if you have friends and family who are resisting, whatever. I clipped a piece in the New York Times. I think it was November 2nd. It was titled, How to Host Thanksgiving with Unvaccinated Friends and Family. And they had a lot of experts telling us how to stay safe and keep the peace. Now, holidays alone are very complicated with keeping the peace for some families. But this year, the elephant in the room is the vaccination status and whether or not you should have a test. The latest statistics, according to the CDC, that was the beginning of November, 67.4% of people in this country have at least one COVID-19 shot. 58.4% of our population is fully vaccinated. And that includes those not yet eligible for the vaccine. More than 80% of grown-ups, 18 plus, have at least one dose. And 70% of grown-ups in this country are fully vaccinated. So what it means is there's good news and there's not good news. We still have a large group that is not vaccinated. And I'm going to explain to you how you can stop this conversation with family and friends. But go to Let Me Tell You, our podcast, and I'm going to give you the rules and how we're doing it this year. And meanwhile, we're coming up to 3 o'clock, so you're going to enjoy the rest of the Sunday on WABC. And wherever you are, we'll meet again next Sunday at 2 o'clock. But have a great day. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Joan Hamburg.